decided to bring Andrew Pachago on board yes tonight in December 2015 so that he can tell us what has changed in his life since that original broadcast which discussed Project Pegasus and, and the Tesla teleportation technology which I presume it continues according to Andrew to be sequestered by the United States military he says that the technology could change the paradigm we live in by rendering our transportation system useless and providing an enormous boost to the planet's environment. But in addition to this, there are some other key critical points that he would like to share with all of you around the world. So why don't we let Andrew tell us himself. Hello, Andy, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? I'm excellent, Mel. Uh, thank you for having me back. It's, it's, it's wonderful to be back with you on Veritas. My pleasure. And as I was mentioning, People who have listened to the first segment years ago and now are recapping their their reminiscing. This is a, an interview that I still get emails once in a while because it was so powerful and the information that was contained, if true, it, it could really literally change the way we live in. So why don't you tell us what has happened since October 2009 until now? Well, you interviewed me at a time that... I was still laboring essentially in the, in the vineyards of the truth movement, um, informing the American people and the people of the world about the fact that teleportation and teleportation-based time travel secretly emerged in the U.S. defense technical community so that by 1970, the DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, was leading a project called Project Pegasus that was utilizing eight different forms of time travel from rudimentary mental travel in the form of remote viewing all the way through advanced technologies that allow for physical teleportation of individuals to what we call the past and the future, to non-local environments. And as you just emphasized, I was driven primarily by a sense of ethical duty to inform uh, humanity that the Tesla teleportation device that was reduced to practice certainly before winter of 1968, which, as I described in the interview, was the time that I first jumped through a vortal tunnel in time space from New Jersey to New Mexico with my late father. That, of course, would be dramatized in the television show Fringe, uh, that, that notion of a father and son jumping through a Tesla device together. And um, so I had been lecturing in that area since October of 2004. That was a year after in 2003. Well, I, I hate to, inter to interject so early, but since you mentioned French, I have to ask you, and I, I, that's a series that I truly loved. There was an, an alternate universe where there was the, the Walter on one side and Walter Ned on the other side. Is that accurate? An alternative... An, an alternate... Alternate, alternative universe to, to our own here? Well, in fact, there are, there are so many timelines in which there are... I, I don't like the term alternate universe. I prefer terms like timeline or dimension or parallel reality. There are so many that recently one physicist, one leading physicist calculated that if you tried to reduce the number of timelines to a numeral to a written number on a page at 12-point type, which would be sort of the standard sort of Times New Roman type 
type font that we use, let's say when we draft letters on, on Word on our computers, that that number itself would stretch for 130 million miles. Wow. So yes, there's not just one dimension next door. There are so many dimensions in the multiverse, as we're now calling it, or as, as Alfred Weber has now termed it, the omniverse, mm-hmm. if we also include higher levels of reality, like the Godhead that we return to when we when we die, um, that they can't even be counted. So the, the universe is finite, the multiverse is finite, but it is so numerous in the numbers of dimensions that it has that it, it essentially uh, seems infinite to us by, by our reckoning. Okay, so, please proceed. With I hate to to have interrupted you. I just thought no, that thought of a parallel timelines or, or universi or or omniverse, as Alfred, Alfred calls it. Right, right. So, so, um, so I had I was still lecturing and I was beginning to do radio shows, and shortly after I I, I did your show in October of two thousand nine, I did the first of eight appearances on um, on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. Um, I was interviewed by Jaime Mosan, so my story not only got to the American listenership through George Norrie, but through Jaime Mosan, I reached Mexico and 40 million viewers in Latin America. So from about the time that you interviewed me to the present, my time travel account has been heard by, we estimate, about 250 million viewers or listeners. And that's just simply adding up the television and radio shows in terms of the number of the number of viewers or listeners listening live during the broadcast or during the first replay a lot of that content has been posted on youtube so now for example since then i've had the experience of being recognized in public i was in los angeles recently and i was walking from the apartment that i was renting to the the beach in venice california in los angeles and i was I was stopped by two brothers from Scotland who were aware of my time travel account from YouTube on, on the way just right out to the water um, there in Venice. So essentially what's happened is I've become a public figure, not a celebrity, but kind of at that threshold level of recognition. In, in demogra- demography, it's sort of the 1% threshold. Are you still practicing law? Well, until recently. I've, I, I've been practicing law in Washington State now for almost 20 years, since November of, of 1996. And loved it. I've been basically a street lawyer practicing crim, crim defense and personal injury and family law and uh, different things that the average Washingtonian needs. But recently, I've been attriting uh, my law practice with a view to running for president. So uh, I'm essentially oh. now I'm essentially now in the presidential mode because what happened during those six years is that my truth campaign about time travel has evolved into a campaign for the U.S. presidency because it's my belief that only through presidential action will we achieve an awareness that this technology was developed secretly by the U.S. government and the will to bring it forward so that we can lead the world uh, in building the advanced civil and technical infrastructure of the 21st century, which will be driven by free energy and 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 the the kind of Tesla technology that that Vortal teleportation is based on. Are you referring Sim- to from going from type zero to type one civilization? Well, yes, and in in, in 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 the way that Dr. Michio Kaku would conceive of that, right. absolutely. Um, in fact, um, since 1970, the very year 
that Vice President Gore, as an undergraduate, was initially being educated about global warming, sitting in Dr. Roger Revelle's class at Harvard College. Since that very year, the U.S. Defense Department has been in possession of a technology that we could use to eliminate 60%. That's not 16. I'm saying 60% of the greenhouse gases that are emitted through human activity globally into the atmosphere every year. In other words, if we utilized Tesla teleportation so that the teleports were as commonplace in everyday society in our cities and towns as, let's say, elevator landings and bus stops are today, which is the conditions that I found when I, when I time-traveled to the year 2045 when I was a child on Project Pegasus. You would be in an office building, let's say in a downtown area, and you would go into a teleport like an elevator and come out in another building or in somebody's home or in a teleport near a neighborhood. Okay, So that's the future that I'm trying to achieve now by running for president, one in which we utilize Tesla teleportation to introduce more than a 50% solution to the propagation of, of excessive carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, the so-called greenhouse effect. That has been possible. It's been feasible since 1970. 1970 was what, 45 years ago? I first teleported 47 years ago. I mean, Mel, I was, as you may recall from my uh, the interview that you did uh, of me back in uh, 2009, October of 2009, I was six years old when I first teleported. You know, as dramatized on French, right? It was what? Walter Bishop and his young son, Peter, right. not Raymond Bashago and his young son, Andrew, brother of Peter, right? In the New Testament. Right. But so they were definitely uh, signaling that. But um, so I was six. I'm now 54. So there's been a half century cover up, not just of time travel. Because look, that's not as important because, in fact, we can't have the average person time travel. We can't have mass time travel. Because mass time travel on mass timelines would lead to mass chaos socially. Let me interject a couple of questions. Number one, yeah. you mentioned the, the presidential bid, and I'd like to explore that too. Andy2016.com, I believe, is your website, correct? Right, right, right. So a couple of questions. Number one, since you time traveled to the past and to the right. future, did you see yourself as president? And this is why you think you can become president. Well, yeah, I did. And, and uh, the, the, the initial context was, you may recall, that um, one of the time travel devices that I was exposed to in Project Pegasus as a child is a magnetic transducer called, now called the Montauk Chair. We were just calling it the chair because Project Montauk, in fact, had not yet been launched. And what that does is it places the individual in the chair in a magnetized environment so it, and it, it which has the effect of enhancing the natural both the psychic ability of the individual and just their ability to perceive the future and so the primary effect of the montauk chair was to uh, psychically and to some extent physically or experientially but in a limited way because our, clearly our body remained back in the chair send us forward in time not backwards where we would then be immersed in about a 15 to 20 minute episode of our own subjective future. And then when that, ex when that experience collapsed and we were interviewed in the chair by one of the docents from DARPA, they would ask us about what we had perceived. 
like if the television set had been on in the future, they would ask us, well, what was on the TV? And by that, they would use sort of um, collateral thinking to develop intelligence about the future we found ourselves in and what it held. Okay. So in that context, from 1970 to 72, in my, in the, my fourth and fifth grade year, I saw, I, I visited episodes in my future where I was either running for president, taking the oath of office, which was for myself a very dramatic moment and a very high energy moment in my life, or serving as president. The second context in which time travel enabled me to see my presidency is you may recall how I described that in the summer of 1971, they shut down time travel to the past involving children uh, via chronovisor because every time they – and I was in that meeting at the Sandia Auditorium when it was shut down and they, they announced to about 30 or 40 project people present that they were shutting down that form of time travel because they found that every time they sent the same child or another child to the same past event, not future but past event, that past event changed a little bit which is certainly what I experienced in summer of 71 when you may recall they sent me six or seven times to the Lincoln assassination. And every time I was in Ford's theater, it was sort of the Lincoln assassination in an adjacent dimension. You know, one time I would see a man walking through the lobby with, you know, a dandy walking through the lobby with a lovely young lady in her Sunday best, dressed dressed in her Sunday best. And then the next time they sent me, he was walking along with two ladies. So are you saying... I'm just trying to connect dots here. Since you mentioned the number, if you had to write down the number of, of, of dimensions, if you will, it would be so many miles. So if you saw yourself as president, this could have been in one of perhaps billions of parallel universi or timelines. So how no, would no. you know? No? Well, no, that, that, that confuses the th- or conflates the theoretical with the practical. Let okay. me explain. When they were developing the time travel devices that they were working with me and other children, such as the Montauk chair and also the chronovisors, which were creating holographic arrays that my father and I were looking at down at the Sandia National Auditorium. We were in a room where they were projecting images of my future in the middle of the room after they shut down time travel to the past because they found it was generating discrepant data around the same events. They were fine tuning the devices. So even though theoretically, the number of dimensions, if expressed as a numeral at 12-point type, would reach for perhaps as long as 130 million miles. The number would be that long. The number of dimensions would be that long. When I was on the project, they were honing the ability to tune in the actual timeline that we would live or that had happened in the past or those most adjacent to it in the quantum hologram. So, for example, at any time in your life, you can do if you if you walk out of a room and there's a hallway let's say in an office building you can only do three things right you can either stand there or go back into the room but you can stand there or go left or right right at around the time that people are applying to college what can they do they can either not go to college or they can go to college a their first choice or an alternate right, right. if you're if if you're dating a lady you can either break up with her continue to date her or marry her Right. In other words, Tesla was describing the nature of the universe when he said everything can be expressed as three, six, nine. So that at the threshold of experience, our experience of all that multitude of dimensions narrows down 
to three primary dimensions. So, for example, I'm now running for president. I just declared on December 19th on Coast to Coast AM with Jimmy Church. I made my formal announcement for president. I am filed with the FEC. I have a website. I have a campaign staff. Okay. And now you're doing so here on Christmas Eve. As I am on your show on, on Christmas Eve. So when, when, for example, at the threshold of my own experience, I said, I said to myself, yes, I'm going to run for president and I'm going to make my first effort to do so in 2016, I had three choices. I could either decide not to do that, right? Or I could decide to run as a, for one of the uh, party nominations, or I could run as an independent, which is what I've decided to do. So in every choice that we make, we're essentially fading ourselves to try to, to select one dimension of the three primary dimensions that we, we live in the no action alternative or the action alternative plus it's alternate. <laughs> and I know that sounds kind of paradoxical, but that's in fact what they found about my future timelines when they began to study my future life toward the end of my experiences in Project Pegasus as a child. You know, here's Andy unmarried at 40 or married to a brunette or a blonde. There's always three choices that we confront. Okay. So um, what I did is I decided to run this year, 2016 coming up, and as an independent. <laughs> okay. So there's always those three, those three timelines that we select from. So in the case of identifying somebody like Barack Obama or myself from, let's say, this, you know, this 1961 birth cohort, this, you know, class of 1979, uh, class of 1983, 84 in college, you know, basically this generation of the 1960s that's now coming into politics, into leadership, they were able to identify Barry as I knew him. <laughs> Barry and I as future presidents, because when they would examine all of the adjacent timelines that are highly likely to occur from where we now are, we were showing up on all the adjacent timelines. See, there's no barrier to the same content, the same individual, the same event, a magnitudinous event or otherwise showing up on alternate timelines. So, for example, I mentioned back uh, on your show in uh, 2009 that when they sent me to the Lincoln assassination, I was always there on April 14th of 1865. They were always successful in putting me down in the muddy road right in front of Ford's Theater. Imagine a Washington, D.C. in 1865 without even paved streets. It was a muddy, wet road. It had been raining. So that we should check that with the historical record. I wonder if it had been slightly raining right before uh, the performance that the Lincolns went to. Our American cousin starring Laura Keene. It was Ford's Theater. I was stopped at a table in front of in the door at, at the uh, entrance to the lobby and questioned about whether I had a ticket or not. Our American cousin starring Laura Keene, one of the great actresses of her time, the Civil War period, was was playing there that night. And the Lincolns attended, and on each of those timelines, President Lincoln was shot by somebody in the back of the head. But what was changing were the small interstitial things. I mentioned different people walking through the lobby at different, at different, in different directions or a different person sitting at the table to inspect my ticket for that night's performance. But let me mention, Mel, actually one discovery about those jumps 
just to show you how. But let's stay with Lincoln for a second, because I never I never asked you this. What would have happened? And I'm sure you had instructions of not getting involved and in trying to save the president. But what would have happened to our future if you had? Would that created have created a paradox? No, if that had happened, if I had been sent back from 1971 back to Ford's Theater on April 14th of 1865 to to prevent Mr. Lincoln's uh, assassination, I would have left a present via Chronovisor in which the saving of Lincoln would have been an historical record, and then I would have gone back and retro retroactively caused that saving of him. So, yes, it, but when you yeah. came back to 1971 – would that have been a different world than the one no. that you knew? No, there would not have been the reflexive prospect or the, the kind of depiction of that scenario where I leave in 1971 where he was shot at Ford's Theater, go back in time, prevent his shooting, and then when I return, have a butterfly effect where suddenly I return to reality where Lincoln wasn't assassinated. That's not how it works. How it works is in 1865 – I would have arrived from the future to prevent Mr. Lincoln's shooting so that I would have left a present. I would have left a future in which he was saved by some young man not shot that night. It wouldn't have been a situation where I would have changed the past. You can't change a past event because when you go back to participate in it, you're in the original event. So therefore, you've retrocausally affected the past so the future that is your present that you leave to go back and do something in the past has been affected by that intervention in the past but what you're doing by time traveling is traveling back to close the causal loop and retro causally create the cause that has already had an effect in the future that's what happens and that's even more that's even more paradoxical than the conventional motion picture or tv show kind of paradox of going back and quote unquote changing the past and thereby returning to a future to a present that has changed because of your past intervention that second scenario that i just described contemplates something that's completely illogical which is that when you go back to the to the present you know, you when you go back to the to the past, you you visited or made essentially a second past that then causes you to return to a different future. I mean, if that had happened, the Josephine Cobb image of me at Gettysburg when they sent me to to try to listen to Mister uh, Lincoln's uh, famous address at at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, on November nineteenth of eighteen sixty three. If not only would I have gone back to a present where suddenly I'm in that picture where I hadn't been previously, but every copy of that picture on every Life magazine that still existed in people's closets and in university libraries and so forth would have suddenly changed like a set of cards being dealt, right? And all of those pictures would have changed to put me in the Josephine Cobb image. And if you think about the processes by which we reproduce a photograph in a popular magazine like Life or, or Time or the National Geographic, how would all those changes be made in all those copies of a popular magazine? For example, the Cobb image was published in the September 1963 edition of the National Geographic. How would every National Geographic from September of 63 suddenly change just because I had time traveled to 1863? It doesn't make sense. What actually happens is when you intervene in the past and if you have an actual effect on events, if you have a, a causal effect 
essentially on the future, the future that you're living in when you decide to go back to the past has already been affected by that change. That's the paradox. I see. Now let's go to the presidential bid for, for a moment. And again, I want to play devil's advocate for a moment. Because recently I interviewed a, a reporter who had a few documentaries. One of them is called Orwell Rolls in His Grave. Talks about the relationship between the media, corporate America, and government. And we know here who owns the media and who owns government, basically. Right, six corporations. Exactly. It's just right. a, 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 a propaganda machine globally. Exactly. But right. when I look at the numbers, 1980, the elections of 1980, $80 million was what the media received campaign ads for 1980. $80 million, which at that's the time probably people would think that's a lot of money. But in, 19, in the year 2000, $1 billion. In the year 2008, Ten billion. So, in other words, you have to have billions of dollars right now in order to become president. How can you be able to procure that amount of money? Well, I certainly agree with your analysis of the situation that we're in, but I don't. I don't agree with with the with the implications that you've derived. So let okay. me let me address this issue. It's it's a critical issue because we are only going to rescue our civilization from catastrophe if we focus on this very issue. I mean, if you assume arguendo that the United States of America is kind of if not the sole superpower in a unipolar world, it certainly is the cardinal country in a multipolar world in the sense that I think we could all agree that it will be United States leadership that would be most effective at addressing potential major catastrophes to our global civilization. For example, the kind, kinds of events we've already had as a planetary civilization, like the solar system catastrophe around 11,500 years ago, where we were hit by debris from space that devastated Mars and Earth and literally destroyed the great maritime civilization that built the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx. Okay, so, Human society on Earth didn't recover for 6,500 years until around 3,000 BC in ancient Sumer. Okay, so I'm getting very far off the track here, but my point is that if we assume that it's going to be the United States that can really provide leadership on, in, in terms of preventing mass catastrophe, we have to focus on two unconstitutional developments that have occurred inside of American political culture that we really have to focus on so that we again have not just an active positive president like a President Kennedy in office, but somebody who really, who will really set a new agenda for a new America and really restore American leadership in the world. And that's what I plan to do. But let me address what those two unconstitutional developments are. The first was the emergence of the political parties. There is no provision in the constitutions in the Constitution for political parties. They are just a cultural development that began nominating individuals for the general elections, and the Republican and Democratic Party now have a lock on the promotion of their insider candidates. Two teams, basically. Right, right. The original model, and in fact, my dear friend, Dr. Thomas Hahn, a USC-educated political scientist, a doctor of, of poli-sci, wrote a brilliant over-thousand-page uh, doctoral thesis at USC in history on the Athenian origins of the U.S. Constitution. And, and Tom showed 
that the framers of the U.S. Constitution were trying to create a form of government in which the natural aristocracy would govern. And that, by that, that wasn't the, that was more the, the natural aristocracy of virtue and talent, uh, addressed by Thomas Jefferson, not the artificial aristocracy of wealth and privilege, uh, that John Adams was beholden to. Now, it wasn't necessarily a Jeffersonian model. There was more of an elitist quality, but the, but the definition of the Greek word aristoi that that the framers were anticipating creating a government that would be peopled by, that would be staffed by, were the best people in society. And by that he meant, uh, he found, virtuous physicians, virtuous teachers, virtuous business people, virtuous lawyers, virtuous philosophers, virtuous farmers. In other words, they wanted to create a leadership cadre around people, people of unimpeachable intelligence, talent, and trustworthiness, honor, such as a George Washington. Look at what everything that Washington was. He was a farmer. He was a surveyor. He was a soldier. But he was a leader of unimpeachable integrity. That is the aristocracy that our framers wanted to put in our top federal positions. Unfortunately, the, he gave us the first central bank with fiat money, unfortunately. Well, yes, he was, he was persuaded by his young acolyte, Alexander Hamilton exactly to to do that so that was that was that was a mistake but um, my point here is that what the parties did is create a system of cronyism in which party individuals uh, are reaching the top levels of government and of party control when they don't fit that Athenian model of the natural aristocracy that was anticipated by the framers I'll just give you a simple example and I don't mean to pick on Hillary. Hillary is a woman. Oh, please do pick on her okay, anytime okay, you want. Okay, okay. I am I, I am running <laughs> against her now, as of as of the nineteenth of December. But no, Hillary is somebody who, for example, is not in control of her emotions. She has rages in which she uses profanity and vulgarity and throws objects. In fact, she was disrupted one time um, in the White House when a Secret Service agent inadvertently violated her personal privacy. And she threw uh, a glass ashtray at him and wounded him. Okay, that doesn't fit the model of the kind of personality, the kind of individual that the framers anticipated should be given the top leadership positions constitutionally in our form of government. In other words, they were seeking individuals of with beneficent personalities. Somebody like our first presidents, all the way through Madison and Monroe. I mean, Washington, Adams, Jefferson. Madison, Monroe, John Quincy Adams, individuals with saintly demeanors who would never lose control and have anger attacks because of some frustration they were experiencing, who would never use profanity or vulgarity, who would never lash out at others because of personal pique. Okay. But what advantages does Hillary have? Well, she was a first lady. That gave her an insider status. She then became a senator from New York, then was appointed Secretary of State. She now is likely to be coronated as the Democratic choice for president, the Democratic uh, uh, nominee. The problem is she doesn't embody the kind of public virtue that the framers intended. And in fact, it will be the party apparatus that will do that. It will be the Democratic Party, not the American people, that will coronate Hillary Clinton 
as the Democratic selection for president. I'm not saying she's going to win the general election. I think she's unelectable because she is unpopular. And I think the reason she's unpopular is because she does not possess public virtue. She's constantly lying. They didn't want to put prevaricators in the top positions. You know, look at what Benjamin Franklin said. Honesty is the best policy. He made an aphorism out of honesty. We all grew up hearing the apocryphal story of a young George Washington being confronted by his father and and admitting, yes, in fact, father, it was I who chopped down the cherry tree. Okay? Most of the generations of Americans have been inculcated in that in that Benjamin Franklin, that George Washington model of personal virtue, of honesty. Okay. So The first unconstitutional development was the emergence of the parties because what happens is party insiders rather than eminent Americans of of personal and public virtue, of private and public virtue, are being nominated and being voted for as as the winning candidates. And the second second unconstitutional development was the emergence of television – in the same way that the framers could not anticipate that something called time travel would be developed by the U.S. government itself by 1970, almost 200 years in the future, um, and that that would partially subvert the selection of president by giving the intelligence community sort of the permanent secret government prior knowledge of the, for example, the identities of future presidents, which is one of the stories I've that's part of my overall time travel account, how uh, the CIA became aware of the identities of individuals like George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama by 1970-71, and were briefing them on their presidencies. So in the same way that the framers could not anticipate time travel, they could not anticipate the emergence of something called television. Let me ask you this. I hate to interrupt you, but I'm thinking of the two other, let's call them dimensions for sake of argument. Let's say there's three. We're focusing on ours, but there's two more. If we go with chronovision, take a look at the past, at the future, and look at certain precedents that did not, did not produce what the power elite wanted, if they come to this reality, couldn't they go back in time and perhaps give a child or a teenager, say, cancer, so that that person wouldn't succeed as becoming the threat to the establishment in the future? Do you see what, what, what I'm saying? Yes, that actually bespeaks a, a future paradox that I can describe. I see, I see here how my, my presidential candidacy is going to kind of be interwoven with my, my time travel expertise. Right. It's, actually, it's actually an exciting enterprise. It's an exciting challenge just, just to parse. But that, that actually bespeaks a future paradox, which is when you use time travel or even simply a technical remote viewing device like a chronovisor to see a future event – what you're looking at is the sum total of all future causes. So if you're looking at, let's say, Barack Obama being sworn in on January 20th of 2009, and let's say you had a racist in government who wanted to prevent a black man from being sworn in as president, and they went back and tried to assassinate him as a 10-year-old in, in, in Honolulu, Hawaii, well, if you're looking at him at 2009 being sworn in, yes, you can go back in time just as you would try to go back and kill your your grandfather so that you would never be born. But you have to fail at all these attempts because the 2009 in the future that you're looking at is the sum total of all past causes, and he made it. He became president. So that's just an expression of the grandfather paradox projected into utilizing a future event 
to then try to go back and intervene in the present to prevent that future from happening. The same thing in all likelihood probably happened with the 9-11 event. I saw images of one of the planes hitting, well, the plane that struck the South Tower. I saw saw images of that event at the Aerojet, Aerojet Corporation facility that once existed adjacent to New Mexico Tech, to the New Mexico Institute of Science and Technology in Socorro, New Mexico. You saw planes or you saw holograms? We saw what we saw TV-like or video-like images that had been physically taken back from, from the future. Okay. In, the, in that case, in, the, in that form of quantum access, because they were, they were analyzing the tape as to what it held, and they were very, very excited to show my father that they had, quote-unquote, footage of the future Pearl Harbor event, which is they were sometimes describing it as. In addition, I heard the phrase 9-11 utilized by my father and other people on the project. So they were aware of 9-11. They had, indeed, they had footage of the, of the South Tower strike, the second strike. However, we know they put FBI agent, um, special agent uh, John O'Neill in the Twin Towers to try to prevent the event, and it failed. And so, again, because they had data from the future, all of those efforts were destined to fail. But that may explain why so many people were told either not to come into work that day or actually successfully escorted from the building. You know, people look at the tremendous tragedy of a mass death of 3,000 people uh, when those two buildings fell. But actually, they got out about 97% of the people in the building. So it was, it was actually a mass success in terms of saving human life. Well, that's true. But a lot of the people who were actually called not to show up to work belonged to a specific group. That specific group belongs to a specific, not country, but that country really benefited from right. that. Right. There were, there, were, yeah. there, were, there were clearly Israeli companies who right. had direct knowledge. But I'm suggesting that when, when the initial evacuation was ordered, it was highly successful. So, for example, 50,000 Americans die every year in car accidents, and we don't spend a year or two commiserating those deaths. We don't even recognize them as a, as a major threat to people in the country. But we went into a major national cultural um, shock experience of shock and of resolution of grief and everything around those 3,000 deaths. And I think it was the drama of the buildings falling. And I think it was appropriate because the country had been attacked rather than just having uh, incidental accidents that, that take human life. But, but what I'm saying here is quantum access to the future didn't prevent the event because, of course, they had images of the plane strikes and the buildings falling and so forth. But it may have allowed us to evacuate most of the people in the building, for example, because we know the FEMA team was put in place the day before. And people say, oh, that means that the event was propagated. It was an inside job. Or they knew from current intelligence that attack might be pending. No. The U.S. government knew at some level, because I saw the footage, 30 years in advance. And of course, as you may recall from my October 2009 interview, the defense attache to Project Pegasus was none other than Donald Rumsfeld, who was serving as defense secretary on 9-11. Okay, so the 9-11 event is interwoven with the emergence of quantum access from the development of time travel by 1970. Did he know he was going to mention to to our our government and our people the day before 9-11 that he was going to report the loss of $2.3 trillion? I don't think so. I think that because they were utilizing quantum access to focus on major events and conditions, 
the kind of ministerial acts that public officials perform and that we we carry out in our own lives was never even really recorded. For example, if they got an image of me sitting at my dining room table, you know, paying my bills, you know, writing checks out or something, they said, oh, there's Andy at age 40 writing checks. And they said, okay, don't even record that. What they were looking for was major personalities, you know, major, they call them persons of interest, major political, social, and cultural change agents, major events, and major conditions. So, for example, one of the things I noted in 2045 is that transport of any kind by the internal combustion engine was just gone. Everybody was either walking, utilizing bicycles, segways, you know, the little it machine that Dean Kamen has invented, or they were teleporting because teleports were as commonplace as, as elevators in office buildings. Um, so those are the kinds of things we were recording, either by seeing them or by them being filmed when they did utilize chronovision or what have you. So there was a lot of footage that just never got recorded. But I did see a room full of technicians who were, who were isolating specific events, like they were gathering not just auspicious historical speeches, but let's say speeches by Lincoln's cabinet secretaries and so forth. In other words, they were involved in a very elaborate historical data quest. They weren't, but they weren't focusing on relatively innocuous events and conditions. They were focusing on major events like 9-11, which changed history and changed our country, I think, for the worse. And that's one of the reasons I'm running for president. I want to drive a stake through the heart of the police state that has emerged in this country since 9-11. That's, that's one of the things that's motivated me to run. Okay, but, but, but basically, um, if, you, if you are viewing the future – any future that you can see with this quantum access technology is the sum of all future causes. So if you've identified a public figure, you basically can't stop them. You can try to stop them, but then you basically run into this sort of perspective projection of the grandfather paradox. I'm looking here. I, I had a a piece of news that came through my, my wire today that I want to make a reference to, and I'm looking for it today. And I have so many that just come in that I can't seem to 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 find it right now. But it, hopefully, before we speak, before we finish in about five minutes, I'll be able to to make reference to it. But in essence, it's talking about how the price of oil continues to go down, and this is this is very critical to the economy because it's showing that the global economy is slowing down to a very very slow pace. But what I find interesting is that some of the the, the the ships that are going to certain places around the world are being turned back for some reason. In other words, apparently the suppliers are so full and there's so much abundance of oil that the supply is so high that they need to do something in order to make people somewhat, uh, you know, change the commodity prices, if you will, so that it can come back to above 40. Because below 40, that is a very, very scary thought for the power elite well well mel th this is why we need a truth presence you know i'm running on a platform of truth reform and innovation and those things are all interlinked let me explain look all we have to do is look up at the chemtrails okay there is a covert program in this country we now it's not a conspiracy theory it's a reality we already have images of the inside of the spray planes sure with all of their all of their capsules of noxious uh, oxides of aluminum and barium that they're spraying. Now, <coughs> excuse me, 
there's my chem flu. There you <laughs> there go. I was going to say some chemtrailing yeah, where you are. Yeah, there was some body memory of, 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 the, of the chemtrails that I breathed personally. Okay, so we have to talk the truth to the American people because we're in a we're in a very complicated situation that has to be simplified quickly to save ourselves. Let me explain. The chemtrails were were started at the suggestion of Dr. Edward Teller, right. who, by the way, was a consulting physicist to Project Pegasus. I met Teller at the Los Alamos National Labs in 1971 when he was cursing because he was unable to fix one of the chronovisor arrays there. After all, Project Pegasus was not launched by my father and I in our garage in Morris Plains, New Jersey, as William Shatner alleged on the History Channel, on Weird or What, on the History Channel. Project Pegasus was the secret twin of Project Manhattan. We were working with individuals like Dr. Harold M. Agnew, who had been a prized physics pupil of Dr. Enrico Fermi on the Manhattan Project, and, and Teller and other um, uh, Los Alamos physicists. But the chemtrail situation is one of the keys that unlocks everything. The chemtrail spraying was done at the suggestion in 1997-98. There was a seminar about climate change in which Edward Teller suggested that we enhance the albedo effect of the planet. That's the degree of reflectance back into mm -hmm. space of solar radiation that occurs naturally under very bright surfaces around our planet like clouds, sand, and snow on the surface. And he suggested that we enhance the albedo effect by spraying oxides of aluminum and barium in the troposphere. That's the utmost highest atmosphere. So we would, we would bounce heat, solar, the heat of solar radiation back into space to cool the planet. Now, what were they trying to prevent? They were trying to prevent the scenario that's described by Art Bell and Whitley Strieber in their book, The Coming Global Superstorm. The, the After Tomorrow movie. Uh, yes, the threat... The threat that was always briefed to the Pentagon by their climate change futurist, Dr. Andrew Marshall, which would be that global warming would get so bad that the polar ice caps would melt and that would dilute the oceans so that the, um, the exchange of heat between the warm equatorial waters and the cold polar waters, the so-called Gulf Stream, would fail as a result of the, of the ocean becoming so diluted with fresh water that the heat exchange between ions of salt in the ocean would fail. And just like your refrigerator heating up on a hot July or August day and then going into a huge cold snap where your whole refrigerator gets caked over with ice, we would have a new ice age. So make no mistake, the chemtrail spraying program is a secret emergency top-level U.S. government program that ironically was decided to be implemented under Clinton Gore, with Gore serving as the most vaunted environmental president or vice president in our history, and um, to prevent the coming global superstorm. Now, now the fear is that if that cold snap, if that sudden ice age occurs in the winter, we could have a freezing of the northern hemisphere as bad as the glaciers were last time when, as you may know, they got down as far as the southern Kansas border. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey and Pennsylvania where we could just walk into the woods and find glacial fossils. Now think of how much civilization is north of, let's say, Princeton, New Jersey. You've got New York, Boston, etc. Okay. So, so the chemtrail spraying program is to prevent an ice age. Now, where is that where, where is that ice age potential coming from? It's coming from the greenhouse effect. What causes the greenhouse effect? 
excess emissions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That's where the whole emissions trading is coming from and all that. Okay, that's essentially the command and control regime from the 70s that Gore and the Cambridge economists and everybody have been propagating uh, us to, to endorse. But are you saying that the chemtrail program or geoengineering is a benevolent project? Why is it no, it's, then it's, that... It's not, no, no, it's not benevolent. Well, let me, let me uh, let you go ahead and... Well, yes, because when I see that they have aluminum, which causes Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, barium that that causes heart attacks, and strontium that causes cancer, right? you know, unless you're saying that the end justifies the means. No, I'm not not endorsing the chemtrail spring. I oppose it. In fact, as a presidential candidate, I vowed that I will ban chemtrail spraying by U.S. agencies and contractors on by executive order on my first day in office. I'm a foe of the chemtrail spraying. But what I was trying to do was I was trying to deconstruct what motivated the U.S. government to secretly implement the chemtrail spraying and do it in concert with other countries because it's going on all over the world. Okay, the cobwebs that the Hopi Navajos uh, predicted um, are now in our skies. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, but the reason it was implemented was to prevent an ice age that's being caused by excessive, at least it's being driven on the human side, by carbon dioxide emissions. Well, the reason that I felt not just a moral compulsion, but literally a higher level spiritual compulsion to go public about what I knew about the the development of teleportation in the early 70s was that if we implement Tesla teleportation and get rid of the internal combustion engines and different forms of transport, planes, trains, automobiles, motorcycles, trucks, so that we arrive on that timeline that I visited, where by 2045, there are no such conveyances. We will be elim- able to eliminate, just in the, by that development in the transport sector of transitioning to Tesla teleportation, we will be able to eliminate 60% of the greenhouse gases that are emitted by human activity every year. So what I'm saying here is that I'm not just talking out of the side of my mouth about teleportation. What I'm doing is I'm trying to advance what I view, and certainly what Dr. Robert Beckwith, who was one of the consulting engineers to Project Pegasus, believed and was advocating for the 40 years that he remained alive after the early 70s, which is that the implementation of teleportation is the most important environmental cause of our time. And what do we have? We, I went through that system of environmental policy and law. I mean, I, I, have, I have a law degree, a certificate in environmental law from the leading environmental law program in the country, and then two advanced master's degrees in environmental planning and environmental law. And our environmental science remains stuck in the 70s. We're still talking command and control. We're still talking about not believing in environmental science and believing that environmental law is going to win the day. I, I, I respectfully disagree with my, my august professors on that formulation. In fact, we need to have a crash program in teleportation to prevent if, – if we do so, we can prevent 60% of greenhouse gases uh, from entering the global atmosphere, and we won't need the chemtrail spraying. What I'm saying here is the chemtrail spraying was a palliative – an emergency measure that was advised by Edward Teller, who was what? He was basically a conservative, almost a fascist. He believed, for example, that building more and more just powerfully destructive thermonuclear weapons would keep the peace. 
which was a, certainly a dangerous proposition. So in a similar way, in a, in a technically Promethean way, in a technically arrogant way, he advised the chemtrail spraying, and it has caused the public health crisis uh, that you describe. I mean, I've been belabored with chem flu for the last 10 years. Most of the people I know have had constant upper respiratory infections, constant sinal problems, problems breathing, wheezing all the time. We are literally being poisoned by the chemtrail spraying program, and it wasn't necessary. We instead could have done, we could have implemented the very Tesla teleportation technology that Teller was aware of because he was one of the consulting uh, physicists to, to Pegasus. So, no, I'm a total foe of the chemtrails. I want to end them and I want to s- seek the solutions t- to preventing climate change right here on the ground. You know, and I have to say this because I, I have a, a radio, another radio program that deals with all these you know, environmental and, and, and so on. But I'm not one of those extreme environmentalists who, who wants to tax the air we breathe because of all, all of a sudden everything will be fixed. It, it takes more, in my opinion, it takes more than a government telling us what to do. It takes looking back at our, to our past and studying civilizations that live for millennia in a sustainable environment and in equilibrium, that's the word, with the planet. I envision, and hopefully you are too, a society that gives more than it takes and, and then when it takes, it puts back instead of having a relationship of seeing everything around you know, around you and I as resources that we can take. I see more of a co-participation relationship in, in which our actions sustain everything living and not. And I think that even the most skeptical person, Andy, might agree with that. Indeed. Very well put. I mean, your point is eloquently voiced. But let me just say, personally, in, in the furtherance of such a civilization, Mel, I was confronted with two choices. I could either remain silent about the secret derivation of teleportation and be a chump, or I could come forward and wage the most successful campaign that I could simply so that my civilization would have the option of adopting this benevolent technology and having a chance of saving itself and become in the process, at least morally, maybe in my own eyes at least, a champion. And that's what I've tried to do. In fact, I've now upped the ante. I'm running for president to say to this American electorate and through them to the American people, look, we can save the day in the same way that we we prosecuted the war against Hitler, and as the Russians did on the Eastern Front, and 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 quelled the fascist tide in Europe and and Japan. Um, we can now lead the world in implementing teleportation, and 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 literally begin melting our cars, trains, and planes. And all of these other devices that are spewing uh, greenhouse gases. So then we can decide, well, how are we going to take care of the other 40% that we're emitting? Because look, if volcanoes start going off, as they did around 400 AD, there's going to be a mass die-off and the living will probably be eating the dead. I mean, in for example, in Europe in that disaster, when there was a spate of major volcanic eruptions in 400 AD, the population was reduced to 25,000 individuals. That's why the European people are no greater than one thirty-second cousins to each other. I mean, that was relatively recent. That was only, what, 1,600 years ago? Okay, so we, we don't have bromides for volcanoes. We can't drop an Alka-Seltzer down a volcano. We simply haven't developed the technology to do that. We can't cap them either. They'll just explode and do what they do. 
So if we have a mass event like that, basically our goose is cooked. But if we find a way ultimately to direct volcanic eruptions in a more benign way, where there's not such an atmosphere-based release of gases, but maybe a subterranean one of some kind, or we find ways of capturing the gases, um, we can sustain our planetary civilization and not have a mass disaster from human activity itself, because that's essentially the trim tab now. Trim tab being a metaphor for the element that guides the rest of the ship, right? In other words, even though we can't change things like how hot our atmosphere is getting by where our planet is in space, we can still control what human activity contributes to the global atmosphere. Let me ask you I'm, this. Yeah, yeah. We have the Hubble telescope taking pictures of very distant galaxies and all sorts of space scenery and allegedly thousands of satellites up there. Will we ever see an image of our planet Earth that is not CGI since we don't have a single non-CGI image. Mel, I could go into the I could go into the flat earth controversy. I've been reading that literature. <laughs> I've been reading that literature for a year. It's my primary I don't want to touch the flat earth. I'm asking just one sim- it's, it's my primary form of escape reading on airlines. I <laughs> wait, wait, dig wait. into I, Math I, Boylan and Eric Dubai and, and I'm not asking about flat earth. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. simply asking why haven't we seen a single picture of planet Earth that is not a composite or CGI? That's why I'm, I'm trying to avoid the flat Earth conversation because I know it's very polarized. But simple questions like, like, like this one should make a spherical lover or a flat earther ask the same question. Well, whether we're living on a spherical or flat Earth, we, we're still living in, in an atmosphere. No, that's not the question I asked. Have we seen, or why, with the capability that allegedly we have, Hubble Telescope taking pictures of very distant galaxies, or thousands of satellites up there, or we went to the moon several times, why haven't we been shown one single image of planet Earth that is not CGI or composite? Because none of the pictures I've seen are real. I have no idea, Mel, and I, I don't know what I can do as president to reverse that. But let me just say this. Let's not be intellectually skittish about confronting the very articulate arguments that the, and factual arguments and theoretically brilliant arguments that the, or brilliant theoretical arguments that the flat earth adherents are making. I have already vowed as a presidential candidate, I think I may be the only one, that if I learn as president, for example, by consulting the National Reconnaissance Office and the other, um, NASA and also the other photographic agencies in the executive branch of government, and I find that the Earth is in fact flat or non non globular, as the flat Earth adherents are arguing. I will release that to the American people because I have vowed to serve as the truth president. So I'm taking in that literature and and sort of I'm sort of astonished by the fact that I'm even considering the possibility that the that the that the Earth isn't a globe and that we've been uh, that we've been deceived for 500 years. Um, the sign because- of an educated mind is one that entertains a thought without accepting it. And that's exactly what you're doing and what I'm doing. I agree. And I think we have to look at that. But my, my point here is my work in the truth movement will be reflected in the truth policy that I adhere to as president, namely in both the development of time travel and the achievement of Mars visitation. I've made two major points over the years during this this now 11-year truth campaign that I've waged. One is that the people have a human right 
to know about the, the very advanced state of technical development, what the state of the art is in technical development in our civilization on Earth. They have a human right to know that. Most of all, so that they're not suppressed by a tyrannical government in possession of more advanced technology than the people hold and, and, and can operate. And second, I made the point that the people have a human right to know about the true natural history of the cosmos we inhabit. So the flat earth would follow that second prong of my basic human rights-driven truth policy. I believe that the right to the truth is part of the common heritage of humankind and I'm going to fight for it as president, even if they try to kill me. For example, I might appoint somebody like Robert D. Steele, director of central intelligence, so he can transition the central intelligence agency and other alphabet uh, intelligence agencies into primarily open source intelligence. In other words, we won't be talking secretly about what Vladimir Putin's about. The intelligence agencies will be publishing on the internet their analyses of Vladimir Putin. Okay? That's what open source intelligence is. It's viewing the intelligence community as the supermunary university, so to speak, the leading think tank, not as a covert agency of secret information acquisition and transmission. We're still stuck in that Cold War modality, and it's not working for the society. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a few concise questions and some concise answers. Would you allow an independently funded research expedition that allows to go beyond Antarctica unimpeded? Yes. Good. Televised live on the internet. Excellent. Would you do something about the Federal Reserve System? Yes, I would eliminate it, and I would begin printing not Federal Reserve notes loaned into existence at the cost of the American people and the debt peonage imposed on them by the Fed, I would end the Fed and begin printing under the constitutional paradigm for monetary policy, which is I would begin having the United States Treasury printing United States notes simply into existence at par. Would you allow alternative sources of energy, and would you allow the patenting of certain technologies that could make a current paradigm obsolete? I've even pledged protection by U.S., by federal U.S. marshals of new energy inventors and progenitors so they're not assassinated before their works can be completed and socially adopted in the way that, for example, Stanley Meyer was killed. Would you do something about our, but, our current budget that has over $600 billion, I believe it's over 60% or 70% of our budget going to the military? What would you do with that? I, I admire your, your grasp of facts, Mel. In fact, I saw that same report. I think it was this year, it was $670 billion. Correct. Uh, I would address the gross disproportion of spending, the gross misallocation of spending embodied in, I think it's maybe even more meaningful to identify the fact that, or at least we can get a better grasp on what that $670 billion means. We are now spending 59% of the federal budget on quote-unquote defense we produce a hundred, but 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 yet we produce a hundred and five percent of the food that is needed to feed the entire world every year, but still twenty percent of American children language in frequent hunger. So I would reallocate the U.S. defense budget as much as is necessary to eliminate two societal problems, and I would use this as the benchmark of the drawdown from the defense spending: homelessness 
and hunger. That's it. In other words, I would take the defense budget, whatever it is, $670 billion in 2015, in FY 2015, and I would say, okay, how much do we need to take from defense so there is not a single American, child or otherwise, who is either hungry or homeless? Then I would talk about what we would do with the rest of the defense budget. But yes, there's a gross misallocation in the U.S. budget. The military-industrial complex that that our dear friend Laura Eisenhower's great grandfather, President Eisenhower, warned us about, uh, and and its and its power within the secret corridors of government has taken over the government and is now usurping approximately sixty percent of the federal fisc. It's a cancer that's eating away at the constructive capability of the U.S. government, and that's a major element of the reform that I will be advancing in my truth reform innovation presidency. I will be reforming the federal government by reallocating defense spending to human needs. If we allegedly went to the moon several times, why haven't we commercialized it? Hospitality, space tourism, and why haven't we returned in almost 50 years? Well, there are several major threats that cause me to endorse increased spending on space. I mentioned the threat that, for example, Graham Hancock uh, describes very well in his book, The Mars Mystery. I would recommend that to your listeners. We could once again be struck by debris from space and find our civilization devastated. We we also are at risk of a loss of our electrical grid, our electrical grid as a result of either a natural or military or terrorism-driven electromagnetic pulse attack. And our response to that would only cost $2 billion. And I certainly salute our colleague George Norrie for trying to alert the American people about that threat and the relatively inexpensive solution of $2 billion that would be necessary to secure our electrical grid. So in the area of space, which is the question you asked, I want to develop a space potential so that we can knock down anything that would come towards our planet. In the same way, if I'm elected president, one of my first acts will be to convene a joint session of Congress. And in the same way that President Kennedy did in, what, April of 1961, in that time period, May, May, April, May of 61, and urged us to land a man on the moon and return him safely to the Earth by the end of the 1960s, I'm going to go before a joint session of Congress and urge emergency funding of $2 billion to protect, to protect the U.S. electrical grid from being shut down by an electromagnetic pulse, which, as you know, Mel, would basically render us back in a 1776 level of existence. Uh, but I, aware of that. I, yes. I favor dramatic increases in space spending. JFK said, I want to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces. Would you say, as president, that you would splinter the NASA into a thousand pieces and create a new entity for the people? Well, President Kennedy was a visionary, but in that statement, he was responding to his anger uh, over the Bay of Pigs operation, so I wouldn't rely on that quote. Um, I would say that... Okay, rely on results that NASA has given us, which are nothing uh, but false. Okay, let, let me say this. In the, multi, in the multipolar reality that we're living in, even just the potential economic competition presented by the BRICS coalition of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, now as a basically a common market and a sort of an economic faction 
uh, that will challenge the primacy of the dollar as the world's reserve currency and so forth. And with other threats, environmental threats, threats from terrorism, threats from the rogue nations that exist in the world, such as North Korea, um, I don't favor splitting the CIA into a thousand pieces. But what I do favor is evolving the intelligence community in the direction of open source intelligence as articulated by Robert Steele. What about NASA? I believe in democratizing it. In the case of NASA, the problem with NASA, in my humble opinion, is that NASA is a military agency, and it's been involved in several major military cover-ups. It's part of their you know, charter. They're part of the Department of Defense. Right. And Well, actually, it's a violation of their charter because in the 1958 enabling legislation that created NARA, which became NASA, the primary mission of, of the space, U.S. Space Agency was to foster human knowledge um, of, of, of outer space and the near-Earth environment. And, and yet NASA has been adhering as a defense agency, as a military agency, it's been adhering to the diktat that was laid down by the Robertson panel in 1953, the Durant report of the Robertson committee of 1952-53, which stated, for example, in the area of extraterrestrial politics, if you will, that anybody making claims or presenting evidence of extraterrestrials or, or contact with extraterrestrials or their technology should be subjected to public smear campaigns involving fear and ridicule. And that's certainly what I was subjected to when I came forward with my information about the very real Mars Jump Room program that I was part of in the early 80s. Okay, so what I would do with NASA is I would, in the same way that I would evolve and transition the Central Intelligence Agency towards open source intelligence, I would transition NASA away from a military orientation and more towards an exploration and educational function. We got some of that, but very little from NASA. For example, you know, my group, the Mars Anomaly Research Society, looks at NASA's images from Mars and finds life forms and artifacts in them. I, I showed many life forms and artifacts on Mars in my landmark paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars, in 2008, and that actually led to the founding of the Mars Anomaly Research Society called MARS by its acronym. And now we have almost uh, uh, 13,000 members, and we're doing something that, in fact, NASA should be doing. NASA should have top photo analysts, biologists, anthropologists, structural engineers, architects, and others, different you know, f forensic architects and, and archaeologists and so forth to look at what NASA is imaging from Mars and tell the people of the world what's in the pictures in the same way that the National Geographic would strive to, to author a caption of one of its photographs. But NASA isn't even doing that. In fact, NASA recently announced that there may be water on Mars, and I showed it like three or four years ago. Okay, Back in 2009, I showed water on Mars, and NASA just announced it last year, five years later. So the problem with NASA is really the same problem with the CIA. These both should be working as almost like super universities, but instead they're working as sort of sequestered military intelligence agencies. That's what we need to transition them from, from being military agencies to primarily ed science and educational agencies. Someone, Andy, I will close very soon. I expected 5, 10, 15 minutes, and I'm glad that we extended because I think the listeners have enjoyed the, the last hour, but someone obviously with a lot 
of time on his hands was going through Google Earth, almost pixel by pixel. And what he found didn't surprise me, but I'm sure it's going to surprise a lot of our listeners. And you probably have seen the footage. He went to Greenland and found some of our rovers, of Mars rovers, and a few NASA vehicles with the logo and the facilities and people. And the terrain looked, if you have to put a little bit reddish, of course, but the terrain looked exactly, Andy, as what we have been shown about Mars. How do we know that those pictures and, and footage that we're seeing of, of all these rovers are not actually being taken perhaps on Greenland, perhaps in Central Australia? How do we know? Well, I can say that there is a correlation between the account that I've provided and that has been provided by other U.S. cronets who have been to Mars, including the two whistleblowers I personally brought forward, namely William Stillings and Bernard Mendez. Bernie just called me tonight, by the way. Uh, so we're still in communication. Uh, we came forward as three whistleblowers who had been trained together and sometimes deployed on the surface of Mars together. Now, what's the correlation? Well, what we saw on Mars, for example, I was chased by one of these plesiosaur-like creatures on Mars. The plesiosaur, which was an aquatic reptile on Earth, not a terrestrial reptile as it is on Mars, did not survive the KT extinction on Earth, although occasionally there'll be sort of a lake monster sighting, like at Loch Ness or Lake Champlain or Lake Okanagan, in which, you know, Nessie, Champ, or Ogopogo is seen, and they certainly look like plesiosaurs. So those may be time slips or something in which one of the plesiosaurs from prehistory somehow they're seen, if not being physically present there. Uh, but in any case, the, the leading uh, paleontologists and archaeologists would state that the plesiosaur as a distinct species did not survive the KT extinction that killed the dinosaurs. Okay. Now, I've described in my narrative of visiting Mars, and we have now found in the NASA data plesiosaurs. Now, the only way those plesiosaurs, for example, I describe plesiosaurs that are, many of them can be seen in NASA image PIA 10214, which was the sole photograph that formed the basis of my landmark paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars. So the point I'm making here is that the interviews with those who have visited Mars correlate with discrete discoveries that have been made in NASA's data from Mars that show creatures and humanoids that do not exist on Earth. So the only possibility would be that somehow we were being deceived by a virtual reality array when we thought we were being sent there via jump room. And then post hoc of that, NASA has been creating either photoshopped images or using dummies and stuff to create images of false humanoids and animals on Earth that they're now purporting are, are, are on Mars. Now, NASA isn't even stating what's in what's in its own images, which goes to my point about its lack of a science and an educative function. It's really just sending robots up there and taking pictures and then not analyzing them. If they are analyzing them, they're certainly not sharing publicly the fruits of their analysis, which again goes to the truth function of government that I'm going to be promoting. But my point here is that if everything we're finding in the images has been fabricated, fabricated in, in Greenland, uh, then we or Australia have, or, or some Australia. other places or, or yeah you know in, in in the Mongolian desert or something right. the Gobi Desert uh, then we're dealing with a high level conspiracy that somehow nonetheless has made elements in the images resemble what we personally encountered on Mars for example you don't really forget being chased by a plesiosaur on another planet 
and I had the privilege of that experience at age 19. Uh, so, um, one last uh, question before, yeah. before we, we end, I know a lot of listeners who are listening, they're saying, you know, this sounds too good to be true. And you have to understand some people are open-minded, but they're still skeptical to the skeptic mind, skeptical mind. What do you tell them when they say, can you prove your claims? Well, proof is, is a loaded word because a proof is really a standard of proof, preponderance of the evidence. Um, clear and convincing, substantial under the Administrative Procedures Act, or let's say beyond a reasonable doubt in cases of, of, of capital offenses and high felonies and so forth. It just depends on the legal system. The real issue is evidence. What evidence have I propounded? The yes. first evidence that I propounded is direct evidence. When you testify about things that you saw or did or were told as a verbal act, you are providing direct evidence, unless, of course, what you heard is hearsay. In other words, somebody didn't say something, but they said somebody else said or did something. Okay. But the first form of evidence I provided, and I provided, I, I allege, you know, I, my, it's my position that I provided such an overwhelming amount of direct evidence in the form of my factual description of my time travel and Mars visitation experiences that that direct evidence not only is admissible because it comes from what I saw or did. After all, people are convicted of first-degree murder every day in this country by somebody saying, I saw Joe Bloggs stab that person to death or whatever. Yes, but so, we have a body. Right. But, well, okay, but we have bodies of evidence that support my testimony, and I can describe those. So I'm just making the point here in evidential terms. Sure. The first form of evidence that I provided to meet whatever standard of proof the listener would impose on me or that the, the court of public opinion would is that of direct evidence – Second, my testimony has been corroborated by other witnesses providing direct evidence. The testimony of William Stillings, the testimony of Bernard Mendez, that they were trained with me, that we were sometimes on the surface of Mars together after getting there via what was basically a quantum access technology, namely the jump room technology, the aeronautical repositioning chamber, or ARC, as it was known technically. So I've my, my first-hand testimony has been corroborated, not by second-hand testimony that Andy did that, but by corroborating first-hand testimony, I did that, and so did Andy, and so did Bernard, which we've all done vis-a-vis -vis each other. And then third, there is documentary evidence about different aspects of Project Pegasus and the Mars Jump Room that I will bring forward in my books. It's we're, The hour is short tonight, so I can't go into that. And then also there is the, um, the, the support in the form of information well, on the time travel – in the time travel area, there's information about the life and career of Nikola Tesla that supports the fact that the time travel Tesla that I've been talking about is the true Tesla. In other words, Tesla wasn't just some eccentric engineer. He wasn't just one of the progenitors of electrical engineering in the 20th century. He wasn't just somebody whose work is germane to the alternative energy uh, movement of the 1970s. But in fact, that Tesla was working on teleportation um, during the latter part of his life and had initially started his work on it going all the way back to 1899 in Colorado Springs. For example, the testimony of Dr. Robert Beckwith that teleportation had been developed by the Department of Defense and was 
had already been implemented in U.S. Air Force jets, including the Stealth, and on some naval ships of the U.S. Navy on the world's oceans, supports the time travel Tesla that I've been talking about. And then there's, of course, the images of the different creatures on Mars that are part of our mutual testimony. So what I'm saying here is I'm not providing hearsay. I'm providing direct evidence. My direct evidence has been corroborated. My direct testimony has been corroborated by the direct testimony, the firsthand accounts of others. And then our hundreds of our discrete claims have been corroborated by things that others have either published or that have been imaged as photographs. There are photographs we've been looking for. For example, Tom Stillings, the father of William Stillings, took a picture of myself, Barack Obama, and Regina Dugan at the Finlandia Motel in Mount Shasta, California, during that summer 1980 training seminar. There's also images of Barry Satoro, now known as Barack Obama, and I, on the surface of Mars that Bernard Mendez took and then surrendered to the CIA. So if Obama didn't have his CIA destroy or completely hide those images, I may be able to access those archives as president and literally show images of a young Barack Obama and I standing on another planet together. That's how serious this cover-up goes. But let me just say this. I think the majority of people who have heard my account have believed it because I've been telling the truth. My account has not only been replete in terms of the factual information I provided in the form of direct evidence of what I saw and what I did, but people also know I've been telling the truth because of the demeanor evidence that a jury can bring to somebody providing testimony. That's another form of evidence that can be used to convict somebody, for example, of a crime, is what does the jury think, whether the fact finder is a judge in a bench trial or a jury in a jury trial, the fact finder can use the demeanor of the person testifying as a form of evidence to discern the truth of what's being claimed. And I think in that area, I've really won hands down. I mean, people have come up to me in public. I had J.J. Sandlin, one of the most distinguished trial lawyers in America, take me out for a beer because he said, Andy, you are one of the most talented lawyers in this country. And I said, why, J.J.? I mean, I don't have the trial record that you do or that Jerry Spence or uh, F. Lee Bailey has. And he says, because you took the most impossibly difficult subject to prove, the notion that the United States government developed time travel 40 years ago, and you proved it in the court of public opinion, and you did it with some brilliant lawyering. Your arguments were unassailable. Okay, so I would also add the demeanor evidence of what I brought to my claims, which has been, I think, persuasive. But the, you know you know something? Let me just say this uh, uh, in... in uh, in concluding tonight, I'm not running as either the teleportation or time travel candidate or president. Going back and declassifying and deploying Tesla teleportation so we can literally lead the world and rec reclaim our edge as the world's leader in applied science is not the reason I'm running. That's one of only a 100 proposals that I will be making in my 100 proposals, a new agenda for a new America. And then working around the party apparatus and around the mainstream media um, uh, hurdle that we have, the, the sequestering of the debate that the, that the mainstream media uh, is maintaining, and utilize an independent write-in candidacy that it will be effective in the 43 states that allow write-ins to go around the mass media and go around the major parties and bring my case 
for truth, reform, and innovation to the American people. So I just want to distinguish that fact. Yes, that was the focus of my truth campaign. And I see what you mean. Are you still there? Oh, did I lose you? Andy, I think I've lost you. What do you think happened? I don't know, Mel, but uh, my my laptop was not completely offline because the uh, the wireless was actually shut down. And and this is the first time in about 100 interviews that uh, I had a complete denial of service. And in fact, when I got back online, your Skype had been changed to another status, basically to the closed status. Huh. To the to the red the red icon. Well, if they're lis- if the boys and girls are listening, hopefully they're learning something new. What do you think you said that may have triggered that? I I think probably um, there's a faction that probably resists the adoption of teleportation. But the point I was making, I don't know how much you got of it, but I, I'm I'm simply emphasizing the point that in running for president, I'm not running as the time travel or teleportation candidate. I'm running with 100 proposals, of which one is to go back and declassify and deploy Tesla teleportation so that the United States can regain its edge and reclaim the mantle of leadership in the area of applied science uh, in the world, such as we possessed in the 1960s and 70s. And um, I'm, in fact, uh, running on a platform that includes 99 other proposals, and those will soon be up at my website, andy2016.com. Excellent. And what I was mentioning of, of evidence, you know, it's it's being open-minded, being skeptic. I understand your point about direct evidence, which is, you know, evidence that if belief proves existence of the fact and issue without inference of presumption. But then again, we have physical evidence, which usually involves objects found at the scene of the crime. In other words, a dead body or you know, things retrieved from Mars or a newspaper from the year 2040. That's what I meant. Well, there is the tangible evidence um, bias in the way that we test our environment and reality, as it were. But let me emphasize another point from, from jurisprudence, and that is that tangible evidence can be fabricated. So, for example, a jury may find more persuasive the the testimony of of an eyewitness or an expert stating that something did not happen or somebody did not do something, then they would believe the tangible evidence that that person did something. For example, let's say you knew a person of unimpeachable benevolence, literally a saint, a, a saintly person who would never get angry, never bear a grudge, never lash out, never be violent. If evidence was fabricated showing that that person had committed a homicide, a jury would be more likely to believe the testimony of the defendant or the character witnesses that their lawyer would bring than the physical evidence. So let me let me relate that notion that direct evidence from testimony can be more persuasive even against a lack of physical evidence to the situation that we're now looking at. Jim Mars, the legendary investigative journalist in regard to the Roswell incident, once said to me, he said, Andy, you know, we now have 80 or more witnesses who testify to some aspect of the Roswell incident of, of July 1947. The basic premise being that an extraterrestrial craft visited our planet, crashed for whatever reason, and that dead bodies of of extraterrestrials and possibly one or several 
living extraterrestrials were collected by the U.S. military, and and, and those humanoids and the craft uh, were then secreted by by the U.S. military. He said, the problem is not the lack of evidence, nor is it the fact that we can't present the crash vehicle or physically present the humanoids. We we have 80 people who have testified. The problem comes down not to not to proving what happened, but to belief. If you choose to believe the major premise, then you rely on those 80 witnesses and you conclude that Roswell is a real story. But if you choose not to believe the, pre- the premise, you will then question Harry Truman, President Truman's signature on a briefing document, which quite frankly was what the whole MJ-12 uh, story or incident in ufology was. I mean, Stanton, Dr. Stanton Friedman was leading the effort to prove things like President Truman's signature on the MJ-12 documents to prove that they were a bona fide bureaucratic response to the Roswell incident and other extraterrestrial crashes. So when you have this proliferation of facts that the Roswell witnesses that I've provided, that I and the other whistleblowers that I brought forward on not on time travel, but on Mars visitation, with my argument being that their testimony places me in the classified defense realm, and we can use that to relate back and establish that I was in Project Pegasus because it was the same, some of the same participants, the same realm of, uh, of American society, if you will. Um, there's no, there's no uh, paucity of evidence. We have a surfeit of evidence. The problem is belief. I find, for example, that those who believe me, believe me basically sometimes just based on my sincerity and my accuracy over time, over multiple tellings of my facts, and don't even sometimes analyze the many facts that I've given at how how interconnected and interlinked they are and how dense and complicated that interconnection is. So, for example, I didn't just offer Albert Einstein or John von Neumann or Nikola Tesla. I described a much less heralded Manhattan Project physicist, the actual director of Project Pegasus, as the director of Project Pegasus, Dr. Harold M. Agnew. Okay, so I've told the true story, and there's a great deal of, there's a great number of facts, and they're very interconnected and interlinked. The issue really comes down when I then confront the skeptics or those who are holding out, who they're, they say they're kind, kind of leery about your claims, because really it's a, that, that, that issue is about their belief not my testimony. The ones who choose to believe that a government that had, has had trillions of, literally trillions of dollars where it could even lose $2.3 trillion. How do you lose $2.3 trillion? I mean, if I know when a $5 bill falls out of my wallet, how does the U.S. government operate trillion-dollar programs or billion-dollar programs, <coughs> excuse me, funded by trillion-dollar programs, and then lose $2.3 trillion. I remember, Andy, one day, probably about 15 years ago, I went to my bank, gathered the receipt, and allegedly I had that morning, get this, $425 million in my account. Well, that's your good karma, Mel. All those things that went through my mind, you have no idea. 
But of course, I had to call the bank immediately, and they apologized. It was a, a transfer incorrectly placed in my bank account. <laughs> but what I'm, my point about this... It was actually going to Fabergé, right? The, the, <laughs> exactly. The, per, the, the, perfume, the, the cologne perfume and perfume. <laughs> By the way, that's how, how my, fa- my all my brothers and I used to be called in school, the Fabergés. But my point is, there are ways to track at every dollar if it's digital. And $2.3 trillion could have been traced in the year 2001. But we are out of time. I didn't expect this this long of, of a special report, but I'm glad that we did. And again, I hope that you, you understand that the skepticism has, is I don't mean it in any disrespect, because I like your platform. I like what you're pushing forward. It is exactly what we need in this world that is so chaotic. And when you look at those candidates from the left and from the right, they all have a very similar undercurrent, and I don't think things will really change. We have seen it again and again and again. We really need a paradigm shift. Andy2016.com, any final thoughts? No, just that um, I, I would urge your, your uh, listeners to, uh, to visit Andy2016 into mid-January. We hope to have the 100 proposals up then, and... Um, I'm 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 going to be fighting for this uh, in 2016. So I just stay tuned because this campaign is developing. I do believe we're on uh, on a, on a train that's bound for glory, and, and that we're really going to make our case to the American people. And I do have a plan. And I would challenge the establishment candidates rather than just respond respond reactively to the latest controversies. What is their plan to lead this great civilization? Because you know when when the American president gets involved in leading the country rather than just responding to crises. Great things have happened. I mean, I think of Abraham Lincoln's sponsorship of the land-grant colleges, which led to America's agricultural bounty. Uh, President Eisenhower's sponsorship of the national highway system, which did so much to protect us actually from invasion during the Cold War. And then, of course, President Kennedy's challenge of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth by the decade of the 1960s was so successful that just the development of household paints that the space program achieved paid in so in net social terms for the space program. So in advocating uh, that we lead a technical revolution to achieve teleportation, I'm doing something that some of our greatest presidents have done and that I believe needs to be done again. As President Kennedy said in 1960, it's true in 2016. We need to get this country moving again. Andrew DiPachago, thank you once again for joining us after all these years. All the best in 2016. Thank you, Mel. You're the best. Thank you.